0: I've recently bought tickets to see Jordan Peterson speak in Adelaide, and we're going to be talking about 12 rules for life today, the goods and bads. I'm here with David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. That's good to hear, mate. Listen, um, I know we've both read uh, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson and you yourself have read uh, Maps of Meaning. Um, I think there's a lot to unpack about Jordan Peterson and his entire philosophy, but let's try and whittle it down to 12 Rules for Life. I think we can personally just go through each of the rules and discuss them.
1: I think that'd be a great place to start. I think for listeners' sake, anyone out there thinking about reading Maps of Meaning... Make sure you leave a month because it is the densest thing I have ever read, or well, in my case, listened to, with mm. Jordan Peterson reading it, which is fantastic because the author's own voice means all the inflections are in the right place. But if we can imagine that if we pile enough you know, plants on top of each other 50 million years ago, they eventually become coal, Maps of Meaning is like the short version for your brain. Mm. It's... It was meant to be the densest thing that he's ever
0: written as well. Right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so. When
1: he talks about writing it, you go, okay, I can understand why when it was marked and became his PhD and got him his doctorate, people just went, whoa, this guy is going to be important. <laughs> yeah, There is no doubt in it. To be able to synthesize in that many layers, that level of integration, that level of complexity, to keep all the balls in the air, all the intellectual ideas, all the questions of faith and reason ticking along together in a united form, is a spectacular achievement. Mm.
0: That's the overarching uh, accomplishment. Well, uh, attempt, isn't it? The to to meld
1: faith and reason. I think that that's the essence of it, and in a sense, that's why I thought it would be good to talk about the twelve rules today. Because there's a history of interesting people talking about the link between faith and reason. The most famous modern one is Leo Strauss. Uh, a German Jew who thankfully escaped to America before the Holocaust. Mm. And Leo Strauss, you a know, big part of his career was trying to go, how do you both have faith and reason? And to my mind, everyone who writes on this you know, overwrites on this. The simple thing is if you're going to be a person of faith and you're going to use reason, except there's going to be some inevitable discomfort. That faith is inexplicable. It is. It's real. It's powerful for the people who feel it. But also accept that from a perspective of reason, you can't ever explain your faith. Mm. Don't try and resolve them, accept the dichotomy. So, you know, this is why I think trying to make some more sense of Jordan Peterson is very important because I can't work out if he's gone down the Leo Strauss path <laughs> of accepting the dichotomy or if he's gone more down the path of Pascal's wager or C.S. Lewis's argument that well, if in doubt, isn't it a better idea to have faith just in case when you die you meet God? So I'm not sure if he's doing the the difficult work of Leo Strauss Mm. or the unconvincing work, in my opinion, of Pascal and C.S. Lewis where, no, I have friends with serious levels of faith. It's deep in them, it's a part of them, it's indivisible from who they are and how they function. And to suggest to them, oh, you've only got faith you know, just in case, would be an atrocious way to define, explain, justify why to have faith. Mm. So I think I want to go through the 12 rules to go, well, do these 12 rules stand up despite the uncomfortable dichotomy in Peterson's thought process?
0: I must admit the C.S. Lewis argument is the one that stands out to me is the one that I've heard in many interviews that he's had. Yes. What I've heard him say kind yeah. of aligns with that the most.
1: Yeah, whereas Pascal's Wager is just a much older and actually far deeper version of the same thing. Mm. C.S. Lewis, I think, was looking to convince people of his argument. Pascal just put forward the argument and if you're smart enough, you'd have an oh crap moment at the end mm-hmm. and go... Do I get faith just to be safe or does this guy just annoy me? <laughs> Whereas in my case with Pascal, I go, your argument is beautiful. No, I don't agree. Mm.
0: The thing that I I don't think Jordan Peterson necessarily threatens that if you don't have faith, uh, something bad will happen necessarily, well, at least from what I've read. No,
1: I don't think there's any threat mm. in there. Yeah, you know, He's not doing a C.S. Lewis on us. Mm. He's not trying to proselytise, but there is an underlying... Either logic or tension or dichotomy between faith and reason in his writing—that mm. is not clear enough for us to know. I don't think where he entirely sits on mm. the question, which then means, even if we like the end point, the rules are awesome, mm. Mm. and that's sort of part of what we need to go through today. Is the rules are really good, really useful, but if you start going deep into where they come from, it gets more and more nebulous.
0: Yeah, that's right,
1: because.
0: Uh, they all have a physical presence at least. Absolutely.
1: So, so you can read them very physically or you can mm. read them from a spiritual perspective mm. or you could read them you know, from a C.S. Lewis perspective of going, I can reason this but I can also reason that I should hedge my bets. Mm. And the problem is that's a very broad spectrum. And on someone who is being so misrepresented, <laughs> misquoted, who will try and answer a question in 30 seconds you know, for an interviewer, and in doing so only get such a small part of what he's capable of saying, it's almost like the more he's talking, the more confused we're all getting about what he actually meant. Well, (laughs) this is the point of going back to the books. Mm. The guy is amazing and totally coherent when he's given the time to put all the pieces together. But within the apparent coherence is still the unanswered question of how to balance faith and reason. Mm.
0: So we will... Get into it, I suppose. The first rule that Mr. Peterson, Dr. Peterson, outlines in his book is stand up straight with your shoulders back. It definitely has had in
1: his interviews a lot of political Absolutely. Uh, this is the one extrapolation. that the, the mm. neocons, you know, the conservatives in the world have grabbed hold of very powerfully and that this has been grabbed very hard by strange variations of the men's movement. Mm. So how it's written and how it's been perceived seem to have no relation to each other. <laughs> What did you take away from the chapter, as a young guy, kind of reading this as part of your early years of reading philosophy? Uh, One of those, again, like a
0: lot of these rules, you already know what he's talking about, but then he explains them in such a succinct way that you're able to encapsulate these ideas um, into one concept. So, for me, it was all those things you might have heard when you were a child, which is like, you know, if you pretend to smile for, you know, a few days you'll find yourself actually smiling more. Mm. And that's kind of how I felt about it. It was one of those things that when I just take it as face value and you don't necessarily read the entire chapter and you're just trying to stand up straight, pull your shoulders back, presenting yourself out in the world with confidence, it has impacted the way that I've perceived myself in certain situations. And then I started to do things that are along those lines, which is like, you know, dress for the job you want, not the mm. job you have. Precisely. So... It's one of those things that I found incredibly useful from a physical perspective. Going into the chapter and reading about lobsters and the whole serotonin thing is just perhaps proof of how deep
1: and long ago it is. Mm. Yeah. See, the interesting thing with this is, you know, um, there's a lady out there called Amy Cuddy that's done tons of work on power postures. Mm. That, you know, but simply before an important meeting, going into the bathroom and standing there with your feet as wide as your shoulders apart, your hands on your hips and your chin up, will change your brain chemistry. Mm. Now, lots of people are now questioning some of Amy Cuddy's research. But in a sense, if Peterson has done the ancient argument, Cuddy has done the current state of the human brain mm. for this question of if you look like you are this appealing, confident person by standing up straight and smiling and looking confident and coherent that's probably how you'll be perceived and more importantly that's how you'll start thinking of yourself Mm. so in a world where we all do the you know the you know smartphone hunch roll our shoulders (laughs) chin down you know come on i'm a blind guy and even i look down at my phone because clearly it's so deep in the human brain to put your head in the general direction of what you're doing Mm. that i do it without being able to see it Mm. so telling all of us to stand up tall Kind of very powerful. So I would actually argue this is probably one of the least controversial and strange chapters. Mm. Yet, all sorts of strange conservatives have grabbed it as (laughs) some sort of underpinning for a kind of aggressive conservative collectivism. Mm. So, there, I think, you know, audience, pay close attention to what Peterson writes, not what people say about Peterson. Yes. Because there's a radical difference between, you know, what he writes and what people say about him including us, like, you know, listen to us, but go read the book. Mm,
0: that's true, because we're probably going to... We're
1: going to do our own version, because yeah. I've read a lot of Leo Strauss. I've, you know, read and partially edited a PhD thesis on Strauss. Yeah, you know, yeah. You know, strange side note, but a friend of mine did a PhD on Leo Strauss, which I agreed to read the whole first draft, and at the end I said to friend, and I won't say his name because I don't want to embarrass him, <laughs> I said, that was like reading a book about the idea... That someone's lost a needle in a haystack but we find out after that no one lost the needle (laughs) it hurt my brain lots.
0: Mm. so i think from just a personal perspective not so much a political perspective that one is pretty straightforward pretty it's very easy to agree with that yes it's very easy to find yourself in a situation where you're benefiting from thinking about it
1: and very clear why it's the first one Mm,
0: that's true Because it does set yourself up for, um, especially the next chapter, which is treat yourself like someone you're responsible for helping.
1: Which is awesome. (laughs) And from my perspective, with a background in Stoic philosophy and in virtue ethics, it's like, thank you, Hmm. you just tapped into all the Greeks, the Romans, uh, and the modern army officers who's thinking I like.
0: Well, here's the thing is, I mean, there's what, like nine less than 10 words there and the idea in in that sentence is very like it's succinct but it's very complex because Mm. when you're when you are responsible for helping someone this is the argument that you're not necessarily just being too critical but you're not not being critical there's is actually it's actually quite a complex kind of concept and it's one of those things that you you would hear all
1: the time that, you know, you shouldn't be too hard on yourself. Precisely. Um, And there's a a great book called The Chimp Paradox mm. and it's written by a psychiatrist, I think he is, Steve, and I can't remember his surname. You guys will all get used to me not remembering everything about surnames or book titles. (laughs) There's too much weird information in my head and not being able to look down at a page of notes means I'm just going to keep forgetting stuff. (laughs) But The Chimp Paradox makes that point very strongly and that is we are too critical on ourselves. Mm. And we actually undo a lot of our potential to get good things done or relate with other people well because we're beating ourselves up. Mm. So yeah, you know, it's a very important step. If you are kind to other people, well, ask the question: Are you kind to yourself? Mm. You know, part of the thing I you know, regularly tell my students is: If you think I'm being hard on you, boy, try living in my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, if I'm going to hold you lot to you know due dates and doing things properly and you know, treating each other with care and respect. Well, guess what it's like living in here? God, Dave, you failed. (laughs) (laughs) So I see great power in that chapter Mm. and also relatively uncontroversial, the logic that underpins it. Mm. Yeah, you you are kind
0: of eased. (laughs) Perhaps even purposefully, the book kind of eases you into the later chapters which have a bit more faith Mm. and and kind of metaphysical presumptions in them. Um, so you, you're really following him along, and, and until you know, there's a few maybe fallacies, or we'll kind of get into that later, I suppose. Mm. But yeah, no, I've, I've definitely benefited from that too, um, and and that, that really does lead into um, chapter four, which we'll we'll get into. But do we
1: feel as if we've covered chapter two? I think so, because again, some of these are just they're really enjoyable to read, and mm. you can see Peterson's capacity to link so much interesting data and go. You want proof? Yeah. I will build you a lattice.
0: Yes. So
1: the next chapter is
0: make friends. So chapter three, make friends with people who want the best for you. Now this I've had an incredible personal journey with. It's interesting when you conceptualize your friends in a way of them being genuinely happy for you when good things happen Mm. and genuinely uh, upset when bad things happen to you. How many times have you shared news with someone and then they've tried to trump it with yeah. uh something worse or something better that's happened to them? Or, you know, turn it around in a way that um it's not necessarily a celebration when you've told them it becomes um a pissing contest really.
1: So yeah. I, I, I reached a, an equivalent conclusion a long time ago. Doesn't matter what you say to anyone, their mm. response is about them. <laughs> mm, mm. So you know, don't expect good from people watch what people do and hang around with the people who do good things. Mm. Again, very virtue ethics perspective again of if in doubt, don't think you can alter people, they'll do whatever they do. So from a modern psychiatric perspective, we're kind of in the realm of William Glass's idea of choice theory where one of the most important things to recognize is external control psychology doesn't work. Mm. You can't control anyone else, they can't control you. But people will always put forward what they are thinking first not you know how things affect you it's always about how it affects them that is our initial response mm. and this is why when you find people whose initial response is to be inclusive and engaged and genuinely empathetic it's like okay friendship group you're in mm mm-hmm.
0: and it does kind of highlight a difference and perhaps even a problem between empathy and, and sympathy where I used to think that sympathy was actually kind of a positive function. And the distinction being that sympathy is when you put yourself into another person's situation, let's say, without any prior experience. Mm. And if we look at the variability of human emotion... If you can share in the other person's emotion, having pretty normal to say that you would have experienced happiness in, in a similar way to another person. Mm. doesn't matter if you've had the exact same experience as them. You can share in the happiness that they're trying to share with you. Mm. Um, so I'll give an example. Last week, uh, one of your ex-students as well, uh, Michael Magali, actually had some really positive news with him and he was said nothing about himself for the next two minutes just was like awesome totally happy about it yep yep incredibly happy and then we went out for coffee and i had a great time it was a great day yep and then opposite kind of thing is you, you might say oh you know i'm really happy about this and then they may say one or two sentences like congratulations but then switch subject or tell you something conversely good about their lives or you know and you can put up with that to an extent but when you're thinking about other people's actions and sentences in Mm. this context you can really pick up on
1: when it's genuine i had a beautiful example at the university last week after getting the teaching award congratulations david now can you do this for me (laughs) (laughs) yeah wow it wasn't even a full breath before the gear changed back to self-referentiality that's astounding that's why I'm not gonna say who it was, because <laughs> now they're gonna know that <laughs> I was really profoundly unimpressed mm. and will probably remain profoundly unimpressed <laughs> for an extended period of time. <laughs> so that
0: again, not very controversial. Doesn't no. have too much political backlash or anything like that.
1: See, that. That's an interesting point. You know, here we are, these chapters where chapter one gets taken out of context fairly regularly. Mm. These next few don't. Mm. Well, hello people talking about Peterson. How about you talk about all the chapters, mm. all the ones that just help you think about yourself and others in a more positive way that enhances flourishing? Yeah. Surrender the controversy and up the flourishing. And even I'm going to have to think about that myself because I was like, oh, the faith reason thing bugs me. Yeah, but I also have to acknowledge it on the other side. The flourishing side of it makes me happy. Mm.
0: Well, this is that, you know, I have plenty of people in my life that don't, don't agree with, don't like Jordan Peterson. And sometimes I feel as if I have to justify myself. Like, hey, I'm not some, you know, right-wing uh, <laughs> neocon or something Yeah, like I think this, it'd be but... a bit
1: hard to argue that we're right-wing. <laughs> yeah. All right, when I'm working for the army, all right, maybe you could accuse me of it. Mm. But I don't think you have to talk to me long to realise, mm, no.
0: I like to describe myself as a 60s hippie, I'm like a classical liberal. But <laughs> You don't
1: say wow often enough. you don't say it slow when you say it you're fine you know the 60s hippie you can imagine it if you like but I'm not letting you have the title
0: oh fair enough okay yeah All right. well I didn't live through the time that's fair enough
1: (laughs) sorry we'll get you a Hawaiian shirt and you can gray your hair really long (laughs) and we'll get you beads that you'll have to take off when we're recording we can go down this path if you really want to I will help It's that thing about caring about other people letting (laughs) them be themselves yeah thank you yeah But you know, I do feel
0: sometimes I have to justify myself when you know, say I've bought tickets to this show that you know, I'm not I'm I'm not necessarily I don't align with everything he says. I mean, there's some things he shares about climate change that I definitely don't agree with. Yeah. However, I think the book has had a net positive, let's say, for people, but and then especially men in my age demographic.
1: Yeah, because there's all sorts of interesting questions going on at the moment about what young males are meant to be in Mm. modern western societies so you know phil zimbardo wrote a book about this something like young men adrift you know the point being that who and what should a young man become in the united states now and yet some fascinating things came out of his book and one of the most interesting things is when he you know managed to do a survey of young guys going into the us army and marines Mm. And they said one of the principal reasons they joined was not to go to war. They don't really want to go to war. They joined because it was one of the few places that they were still allowed to be overtly masculine. Mm. So, you know, this is not just a Jordan Peterson issue. And Peterson really doesn't go into stuff that could be misread as extremely as Zimbardo does. And there's another gentleman
0: who talks about the boy problem as well that Jordan Peterson talks to. Uh, the boy crisis. Warren... Farrell. Farrell. Yes. yes.
1: So maybe we should think about having a whole episode on that thing of mm. we want to live in more equal societies. Mm. In order to get to a more equal society, women have to play a greater role and be listened to and included. Mm. But somehow we have to increase the opportunity to be themselves mm-hmm. without displacing. Yeah, yeah, somehow we have to have male female Masculine, feminine, everything in the middle, Mm. but not nudge everything in a new exclusive direction, Mm. which is hard to do. Because when you want a political outcome, you need to direct yourself and your resources towards that outcome. Okay, yeah, that, that's going to, to be a separate big thing, isn't
0: it? Yeah, yeah, it's one of those things. You can't do everything all the time. No. Um, I have begun to accept that with people in my life that, let's say, align with political philosophies that I don't necessarily agree with, is that if, if what they're doing has a net good, then if there's some kind of other party, other political philosophy out there that is also doing um, a, a converse net good for a different demographic, then it's okay. Just everyone needs to be represented in some way.
1: Yeah, you're essentially trying to get to the point of accepting the righteous mind argument but going, well, as long as there's good outcomes, it's what people are. Mm. We're driven moral tribes.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, it's tribalism. It Mm. comes back to that. Now, rule four for 12 rules is compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. This is a really, really good rule on the basis that it not only affects an individual, but if everyone followed this, the it would it would have a really big societal impact, actually.
1: You know. We're kind of back to a combination of, you know, get rid of external control psychology. You can't change anyone else, but also don't try and be someone else. Mm. But on the other hand, this is also acknowledging that in the same way in the first chapter we're talking about lobsters to establish status and how to behave. Here we're you know, going back to the point of we are social Mm. we can exist on our own but it's not good for us again there's a big difference between being alive and thriving Mm. and there are very very few humans who can really do well on their own but doing well together in its ideal form is you know have a collective identity that empowers people to be the best version of themselves within reason Mm. whereas we get so lost in i think now celebrity Mm. Oh, that person's amazing. They look amazing. They do amazing things. Oh, I'm me. Blah. Mm. Mm. Yeah, there's times where I'm actually really grateful I can't kind of see that aspect of social media because it just seems to be so detrimental to so many people.
0: The visual aspect. Seeing is,
1: perfect yeah, of perfect lives and shiny jewelry and fast cars and cool clothes. Because
0: we've worked out how to edit people so that they look Fabulous Alien But we haven't worked out How to do that necessarily To their voices There isn't some idyllic
1: No <laughs> No Again people look amazing Then you hear the voice And go "Ha ha, I win <laughs> yeah. I got a better <laughs> radio voice <laughs> So And yeah For the sake of listeners yeah. Okay you know, I should elaborate on this To a degree Being blind Okay well What do I wear What do I do Well I'm sitting here In a pair of cargo pants A blue polo shirt And a black north face vest Because it's raining outside hmm. That's as complicated as I get because I'm not affected by what other people look like. Functional. Yeah. I am Mr. It better do the job. It better have pockets. (laughs) It better deal with the weather. Mm. So, yeah, I imagine I'm actually going to stick out in a lot of places by just looking totally unfashionable.
0: (laughs) What I think this does is really serve the individual because it allows people to become, I guess, what they're naturally going to be, you know. It removes, yeah, exactly, the externalities, mm. removes external forces. And then, you know, it allows people to become, let's say, all of, all that they can be, which then, you know, if we mm. value people on an individual basis.
1: But it's also by the day, which I think is wonderful. Yeah. Because it's not saying fixate on being perfect. Mm. It's saying, yes, today, what'd you do? Today, mm. slightly improve it. Mm. So, you know, here again, it's sort of partially the Taoist idea of Wu Wei, effortless action. Mm. Understand the rules to do okay. Think about what you did yesterday. Think about if how you repeated yesterday. How would you make tiny improvements? Mm. Mm. You know, so from a more modern perspective, Friedrich Nietzsche's idea of the eternal recurrence—that you know, if we could live forever, inevitably we'd start repeating days. So if you're going to have to repeat this day, you know, ad nauseum. Do a decent job of it so you don't go mad from not liking how you did it.
0: Yeah. You can get easily caught up in how all your days vary, mm. obviously. But uh, the point is that the outcome should be better, as in like you know, slightly mm. more productive. Uh, you know, I set myself up, did made lunch tomorrow, whatever it is. Mm. Um, made, made it so that tomorrow I'm... I'm set up better to, to do even better again and then the flow on effects from that are incredible
1: mm. and it's a very interesting thing being a teacher that you know there have been well first semester this year I was teaching a two hour lecture and four tutorials in seven hours mm. and yet I wasn't repeating the chutes because if I do that I am going to be exhausted mm. but if I walk into the next shoot going okay I just tried this with that group that group have that characteristic I tried it this way. Now I'm going to get bored if I repeat. What could I do that I'm more proud of or more engaged with that also suits the dynamics of the next group? So even though you know at the final tutor of the day, I'd look a bit knackered. <laughs> they still, you know, I think my final tutor for the semester at the end of the day, you know, I still had ninety percent of them, which is not bad for a four pm tutor on a Friday. It's probably better than most
0: arts courses, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So
1: you know, it is about that thing of even not by day, but just going. Don't just repeat. Be present, mm. but be present in a way of going. What did I do a little while ago, and how can I do it a little bit better? Mm. So this is grounded in so many traditions. Um, yeah, you know, it's a wonderful thing. It's a thing humans just find, and all cultures seem to find a variant of it.
0: Mm. I have been thinking really deeply about valuing the individual because. This for me, and we were talking a few weeks ago about uh, diversity, mm. this for me is what is the ultimate uh, diversity. I mean, because Jordan Peterson talks a little bit about intersectionality, mm. really opposes it, but mm. there's kind of an irony that he highlights when he talks about it, which is that if you were to divide people in into groups, if you did it enough so let's say you do sex and gender and Mm. race or whatever which is generally the common three if you were to keep going in these like you know you have height and then Mm. age and all these kinds of things you did that enough you would just come down to the individual Mm. um most likely so it's Mm. it's funny that you follow that enough and you kind of come back to the very thing that you probably wanted to avoid in the first place so
1: yeah but then it's also the dichotomy in there that you got to that individual by peeling and peeling and peeling and peeling Mm. to go, ah there's an individual. But if we said now, be that individual on your own, Mm. could people cope with it? So there was a famous example of taking this to its logical, illogical, end. I'm not sure which way to think about (laughs) it. In the 19th century, Max Stirner, one of the greatest German anarchists, wrote a book called The Union of the Egoists, Mm -hmm. where he tried to imagine a society made of people who don't need anybody. Don't even bother to have a shared language. Mm-hmm. and it, It's an incredible thought experiment. But it's part of what made him accept the essence of 19th century anarchism, which was, I don't want anyone to have external control over me. But I do have to acknowledge that I want a society where all of us are willing to put aside some of our individuality for the sake of at least being able to interact where there are common goods to be achieved. Mm -hmm. And this is this thing. We we talk about individualism. No, it's another of these spectrum things. At one end there is the collectivism that doesn't allow any individuality. At the other end is the individuality that cannot tolerate any collectivism and in doing so is destructive to humans. We don't want to be at either end. And too many people talk about individualism like, I want to be an individual. (laughs) Yeah. Do you want to be alone? No. Well... What kind of individual do you want to be? Do you want to be an individual in a society that tolerates a healthy level of individualism, but also provides you a healthy level of collectivism? And I'd assume to most people, the answer is yes. Mm. So it's another thing where we end up riding up and down with the yo yo on the string rather than saying, stop. Let's lay the spectrum out where well, we need to decide where on the spectrum we want to be. Mm. How much individualism, how much collectivism? We want to be ourselves but how many friends do we want to have who share enough things with us because there's a collective environment in which we're valued individually but we also feel understood and included collectively. Mm.
0: Doesn't necessarily lead into our next point.
1: but (laughs) No, and these things will happen. Non-sequitur warning.
0: (laughs) Uh, We'll move on uh, to chapter five. Um, which is do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. I initially didn't relate too much, not having children. Mm. Um, But then when I start, when I keep it in mind and I hear of other people talking about their own children, you know, it was just yesterday my partner was telling me that one of her co-workers um, says that she loves her kid but doesn't like him. And there could be multiple reasons for that. Mm. I'm not trying to say that she was a bad parent.
1: But, no, no, it's just um, a statement that at a developmental stage, mm. a kid can be heading in a direction that just drives you mental. Absolutely. Yeah. It seems as if this
0: kid hasn't got any sense of personal responsibility. So what Jordan Peterson lays out in this chapter is it's a little bit of a, a, a reaction to helicopter parenting and mm. this kind of pattern of, being really nice to your child and protecting them from everything in the real world until they eventually have to face it when Mm. they're not prepared for it at all.
1: So They've got to be likeable and responsible, I think, is the the balance there. And to my mind, no, don't conflate those two things. Mm. Recognize sometimes, and again, I'm not a parent Mm. either, but I've taught thousands of you lot. Mm. I like most of those thousands. There's (laughs) others that drive me to tears. (laughs) (laughs) But... This is the thing. You can like someone or you can respect someone or you can like and respect them or you can like but not respect or respect but not like. Mm. And to me, this is one of the chapters that in building such a deep synthesis misses the point of the dichotomy. What, you know, your your partner's co-worker not liking her child at the moment, Mm. not liking their personality mm. or not liking how they function in the world. Mm. Is it a problem with the child's sort of, you know, emotional way of connecting with other humans, or that they've got no sense of cleaning up around the house, helping, you know, doing anything that makes them look like they're going to be a productive human eventually. <laughs> and that even though he keeps making the point that it's about, you know, you've got to teach a kid to be likable and you've got to teach him to be responsible. And that, that's a parent's role. Mm. Get those two outcomes. Well, no, because some people just are unlikable. Mm. Now, I can deal better with someone who is responsible but not likable than I can with someone who's likable but not responsible. Mm. That I can work with. That's called being a professional. And let's be blunt, parents have to kind of be professional parents. You're a parent, you don't get out of the gig. Like when I signed up to teach for a whole semester... Guess what, students, you're mine for 12 weeks. (laughs) And I'm not going to, you know, tell you to go away or go, you know, you have let me down. I'm going to go, what can I put in front of this person to try and get the enhanced outcome of making them more confident and responsible that I can do? So, you know, for years and years as a teacher, I would have never used the word likeable. Mm. I would have gone, okay, if someone is confident and engaged and engaging, that's what I really want. And I want them to be responsible and get the work done. So likeable is such a subjective thing and so culturally specific. Whereas if we can stretch it out to, you know, is this person confident? Are they engaged? Are they engaging? You know, it's like the word flourishing. If you say, are you happy? Oh, maybe. or maybe not. (laughs) But if you say flourishing, flourishing actually means something. Mm. Is someone likeable? Well... By what terms? Are they confident? Are they engaged? Are they engaging? So here's an interesting case. I think it's the first of the chapters where despite Peterson's excellent use of language and integration of concepts, we see an oversimplification and an integration that for me starts causing rather than solving problems. Mm -hmm. Now, not to deny the value of the chapters before or the problems that I'll have with later chapters are different to this one, but this is the first time I went, hang on. Yeah, outwardly well, it sounds great, but it doesn't work. As in the first four, don't? Well, no, no. That this thing of likeable and responsible to me mm, doesn't work. Mm, mm. You know, it's the likeable and responsible. No, they are different things. I don't need them both.
0: But is it is it different in the sense of a parent to child relationship? Because I, would ag- I tend to agree with you that likeable is, is probably the wrong word. Mm. Um, because there are plenty of people that you, especially in your working life, you, yeah, you, you get along with in a professional sense, mm. but you don't like them.
1: I wish you just turned it into socially acceptable. because <laughs> that that's would, that, what it means. Because it does. It comes back to the playground. Yeah, um, which, which is, is we're back to the lobsters. <laughs> what kind of lobster are you going to be? A tasty one in a butter sauce. Mm, it's a
0: social hierarchy. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It is. It's an oversimplification when you put likable, or or it's just too ambiguous. Mm.
1: And even responsible, great word. Mm. If we know what setting we're talking about, what individually responsible, socially responsible, balance the dichotomy effectively. Getting it down to likable and responsible is like, oh, okay, what. <laughs>
0: but I mean you know that then you know if you were to put those in there that would end up being two sentences instead of one maybe that was the maybe that was the reason but Mm.
1: um, but it seems to me from talking to a lot of people about this chapter mm. they haven't deep dived into likable and responsible
0: no I admittedly hadn't Mm. um, as well so from the from the outset let's say let's say we take it into socially responsible mm. because it is about re- it is about the relationships between a parent and child and then child to other children. Mm. And let's say instead of yeah, dislike what was the
1: uh, well, how about f- we, phrase we use? How about we turn it into sort of socially, you know, acceptable and responsible. Yes.
0: Yes. In that sense I think it does work. If yeah. you would
1: if you were to put that in
0: there. If you okay. were to make it that specific, I think um, but but then what maybe from a psychological point of view is we're missing is then perhaps the data that was backing up this cha- chapter in that it's not all the same thing that he was talking about. No, but
1: then we're also acknowledging that with that first word socially, mm. which social setting. Mm. Mm. So if we define our society, our time, our place, what we're trying to achieve, then acceptability and responsibility – are going to be contingent on our definition of the social, so we're going to force ourselves to be more grounded. Mm. I think. Again, listeners, email us if we're wrong. <laughs> Number six.
0: Um, if we're if we're done with feel like, feel as if we're done with five, yeah, I think so. so. We could keep on that for now, <laughs> but I don't yeah.
1: think we're going to add any value. True. beyond where we are now.
0: Number six, which is uh, set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. Now, I've heard a few <laughs> a few things about <laughs> a few things about this, which is which is quite funny. That Jordan Peterson does um, some vlogs or um, online, ask me any things, um, and in in those you can notice that his office is quite messy, mm-hmm. which is quite funny because a premise of this chapter is uh, clean up your room, mm. um, and then, <laughs> you know, um, I'm also kind of taking from this chapter that you should practice what you preach.
1: Mm. Um, and so there's a bit of a hip- uh, hypocrisy. Well, in, it seems to me one. there's almost maybe two things here mm. because the whole thing of Make Your World Neat strikes me as two things. First is that you know wonderful old comment, uh, people who live in glass houses should not throw stones. Mm. And the second one is Bill mcgraven's you know, uh, commencement address at Texas University, which then became a book where the first premise is, make your bed. Mm. Because if your whole day turns to garbage, you still come home to a nicely made bed. Something was an achievement. You started with a little accomplishment, setting the trend for further little accomplishments. Mm. So, again, it's one of these things, it seems simple, but where do we want the level of ambiguity? Are we going towards the side of don't throw stones or make your bed? Because I would, in a sense, I would rather the don't throw stones if you live in glass houses or people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones as one thing mm. and start the day by making your bed as a second thing mm. and don't try and combine them. Yes. you know, I feel very similarly because
0: they seem to be in tension with one another. Yes. I tend toward the uh, make your bed mm. which is um, also really plays into uh, – Compare yourself to who you were yesterday. Yeah, um, it's it's one of those things that you can do, which is productive. That is, you know, sets yourself up better for later in the future. So, um, and that's something you know. I'm I've always actually really been almost OCD level about <laughs> keeping my room neat and having a little corner of the universe that's uh, mine and 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 is clean.
1: There's an interesting book out there called Messy that mm. is all about how messiness. Is actually good for freeing the brain to think of the new. And, and I think it's probably true. But don't overstate what they mean by messy. You know, messy is giving yourself wiggle room, flexibility, openness mm. to get beyond OCD. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, at some level, I have to put everything in the same place every time. Mm. So I find it again. So do I like doing that? No. It means I spend more time putting everything away properly. It means I spend more time setting everything up exactly so tomorrow I can be out the door and you know on with my day quickly. Mm. Do I like it? No. Has it become habitual? Yes. Does it wreck my flexibility to do the new? No. Where possible, I do the new as often as possible because I have to be so organized the rest of the time. Mm, mm. So there's order for very different reasons. You can hide in orderliness. You can use orderliness as a way of ignoring, avoiding disorder. And that's not what we're talking about here. We want order to be a positive, not a place to hide. Mm. And I'm not sure that that entirely comes across clearly in the chapter. What do you think?
0: No, but it's something that's been present in my life. It's, It's one of those chapters that I kind of glossed over only because... When I started to read into it, I connected with it a bit, but then I was like, I am kind of already have my head around this and I don't necessarily want anyone messing with what I've got You've got your version. It's a
1: successful version. (laughs) Mm. It makes you orderly enough to feel productive, to hold yourself to an account that makes you feel positive about your own day. Mm. But beyond that, moving on. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But I've connected with it enough to to try and share it with other people. But, I mean, you've kind of given me um, a more uh, concise version of what I've been thinking. I have... I'm, I'm. I enjoy putting things away, mm. but you know, um, I, I, exactly kind of as you were explaining, mm. I do enjoy. Cha- I enjoy the process, even, mm. but also the result of changing my room around, putting mm. things in different, exploring what is the best way mm. that I can possibly have, you know, my house or. Whatever it is, my computer, my desktop. What is the best way I can organize my files so that mm. I can, you know, access things quickly? Mm. Um, admittedly, there's probably a little bit of immovability once I find something that is so successful that I, I dare not try and, um, you know, dare not move it again because it's it's probably as optimal as it's going to be. Let's say. But, yeah, but I would
1: argue that could be part of being at the stage of being a young adult, is mm. getting towards the end of uni starting to make very big decisions about what comes next. Mm. When you're facing the really big new things in life, having some other things in order and relying on their order as an anchor mm. is really important. So there are times where some things lose their flexibility for change for a while because they are the rock and the anchor. hmm and as long as they don't stay the rock and the anchor forever, as long as you don't pile rocks on rocks on rocks and eventually end up with a bunch of rocks you can't move, it's not really any problem. Mm. So for me, something a little like where I live my cane and my watch and my hat, totally and utterly non-negotiable. Yes. Other stuff I want to try and do different because as long as the anchor's there, there is flexibility in other things.
0: Mm. I think that plays into what we just talked about, which an overarching theme of the book is um, a balance between chaos and order. Mm. Because um, I mean, the, the the subtitle of the book is an antidote to chaos,
1: mm. and yet what that means is having to remember that the antidote to chaos is not perfect order. Mm. Mm-hmm. An antidote to chaos is enough order that you can be you, and you can be a part of a society bigger than you, mm. and that within that there is always room for a degree of freedom, change. I don't want to say progress, but I hate the word because it gets so obvious. Oh, it's progress. No, it's change. Yeah. yeah, yeah Proved yeah. to me it did made something better. better. <laughs> like we have an awful lot of change in the world at the moment. Mm. But change is turbulence rather than as you know productively, deliberately chosen experiment that if we don't like it, we'll move back or try something new. We're not doing that. We're doing change for change's sake.
0: So we should we change the political term progressive to just changest? Well, I, I would at the moment we're in
1: changest and I want progressive back. Mm, mm. <laughs> and yet you know, Sorry. we have to use progress and progressive in politics mm. because we don't have a better word at present. No, that's true. Um so it it depends very much on the setting. You know, would I want to vote for a progressive political party? Yes. Am I obsessed with a world that talks about progress? No. (laughs) (laughs) Listeners, you're going to get very used to me deliberately setting up dichotomies Mm. because it's part of how I make myself be organized to recognize there is a framework in which I'm trying to function but not to ever say that there is only one line, one point, one answer. Mm. I'm more interested in where the edges are that you don't want to go beyond than where the golden mean is. Now, like I like Aristotle and the golden mean. Find the balance point of a bit of everything, everything in moderation. But you don't know where that is until you know where the extremes are. So to, to find the golden mean, you have to identify and label the extreme. There you are. There's a nice sentence for the day, isn't it? <laughs>
0: yeah, because that has a lot of political weight behind it for sure. I think for me it really it balance is the thing that kind of um, – mm. I take away from this so much, which is, and and that is very Taoist, right? It's very Mm, um, very. yin-yang. So, and yeah, that's meant to represent a similar kind of thing, which is chaos and order. And having a balance between the two is exactly what you were kind of describing before in my situation, which is having, you know, orderly things I can come home to, but then a lot of chaos in terms of where my life is heading. So
1: So you need the balance Mm. and the balance will change over time. Different things will be the certainties. Other things will be the novelty. Mm. Actually, maybe that's an important word, novelty. We are not necessarily going through progress. What we're going through is novelty. Only problem is it's not very entertaining. (laughs) Well, it can
0: be on a personal level if you change a bit of furniture around. But yeah,
1: (laughs) I like that until I fall over (laughs) it. And no, listeners, I don't have any of the furniture nailed down. It's just not allowed to move much.
0: (laughs) So... I think that's a probably a good place to leave it Which is the
1: first six chapters I think so It seems we've got a good chunk there mm. And I'm already actually feeling kind of like Wow We've added a lot Questioned a lot mm. Made links more clearly mm. that, that that seems plenty doesn't it It does It's just that the
0: following six chapters Are the, bit, the ones that get a bit hairy Yeah that might have to become <laughs> Two podcasts in its own right Yeah definitely Alright David thank you for today It's
1: good to have you on Thank you too